Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Whenever you hear the long, long list of people who could be presidential candidates in 2020, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, is uh, often at the top of it. Uh, Senator Booker has an amazing personal story uh, as mayor of Newark and his journey there, and a dynamism that has turned audiences on across the country. I sat down with him in Washington uh, to talk about the battle over health care and what might be in his plan. Senator Cory Booker, great to be with you uh, on what has turned out to be kind of a momentous week Very here in so. Washington. You used to be so, you used to have this look about you, this gritty political work. Now you look downright professorial. Yes. I wish people could see how professorial I'm, you look. I must say that, that it is a tonic to uh, be out of this town and observing uh, sometimes. But uh, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> uh, you, uh, everybody has a story. And but yours is 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 more of a traditional kind of middle class story. Um, talk to me about your folks. They both were uh, executives at IBM, right? I mean, look, to be black in America, you you, you may have a middle class story, but you are very conscious of that. You are uh, just feet away from poverty and. Uh, Discrimination. I don't think there's any middle class African American or wealthy African American that doesn't have family members that are poor, or that doesn't have uh, stories of extreme deprivation and challenges. And so, and your dad actually had one of those stories. Yeah, I, I was one of those kids, and and folks from all different backgrounds have this, where you are growing up in privilege that is so astonishing to your parents, they almost feel like they have concerns, like how could I be raising my kids. Um, and so I got lectures. If I burn toast, it's like, don't throw that away, boy, scrape that off <laughs> and eat that. Because my father would look at me and just say, shake his head and say, I, he'd get angry. Don't walk around this house like you hit a triple, boy. You were born on third base. You need to understand where you've come from. You can't forget where you come from. And it would tell these stories about what it meant to be mountain, living in the mountains in poverty to a single mother. I've now, thanks to Professor Gates, uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, sh- trace my history back into slavery. And, and so on my dad's direct line, it was uh, s- slavery, single mother, poverty, single mother, poverty, single mother, poverty. My dad was born with really no, not, I don't even use the word hope, but no vision for college or challenges. And his mom, though, was sick. And he was then raised by his grandmother who was sick, who was then taken in by a family that wasn't his blood. That's why I always say we are where we are as a country, not because of these simply because of these great founding fathers, presidents, people you see reading history books. It's ordinary Americans. And uh, I always say the conspiracy of love is what often has brought us as a country forward. And so then my dad was forced to go to college. Like, you're going to start thinking about college. He couldn't afford it. And it was a church collection that got him off to college. So what's the ROI on those people who put dollar bills in a collection plate? And then in college, he lands in the 60s in college. And bears witness, the sit-in movement started in North Carolina to this incredible civil rights movement. And he talks to me about being involved in student protests and just being amazed that Americans who weren't even living in his community, weren't even from his state, were participating uh, for his freedom. And he's, again, that's the conspiracy of love. Then he gets to Washington, D.C. and has the, the God, just luck to meet my mom. And uh, the two of them face what, I don't care if you're a woman in America, if you're gay in America, if you're Irish in America, there there was a point that folks didn't want you. And uh, this was a time that corporate America didn't want uh, blacks. But activists in this city, conspiracy of love again, it was uh, blacks and whites through organizations like the Urban League 
that fought to get companies to hire qualified blacks. And next thing you know, my dad is the first black salesman hired by IBM in the entire Virginia region. And this is what happens when you let qualified people get an opportunity, whether they have a bindi or are wearing a, 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 um, a headscarf or are gay. If you let qualified people be a part of the team and get on the field, great things happen. My dad was so successful, he made IBM's gold circle. They were top 5% of salesmen in, in globally and gets a promotion to Manhattan. And next thing you know, he's trying to move into uh, towns in Harrington Park. Where you you mentioned you're never far from discrimination. You you saw some of that. Your family saw some of that when you moved to that suburb of, of in New Jersey. Well, again, let, let's be clear. You know, and that's what the awkward thing about being in Congress, where I sit at the Congressional Black Caucus's table, and you look across the table and you see, you know, Maxine Waters, John mm-hmm. Lewis, these folks from who who are from my parents' generation. Uh, I have seen nothing like they saw. And what my parents saw, I didn't experience. So I, I didn't know this. This is a story told to me. But when I, at the time my parents were moving into Bergen County, New Jersey, there was most of the towns wouldn't sell to black people. And again, that conspiracy of love, people, white people and black people joined in this organization called the Fair Housing Council and sent white couples behind my parents, so test couples. Uh, when my parents were told the house was sold, the white couple would find out it was still for sale. And my parents fell in love with this beautiful home in Harrington Park, New Jersey, but they were told it was sold. The white couple found out it was still for sale, put a bid on the house. Bid was accepted. Papers drawn up. And on the closing, uh, the white couple didn't show up. My dad did in a volunteer lawyer, Marty Friedman, God rest his soul. And uh, the real estate agent was so upset he got caught in the sting that his reaction wasn't, I'm wrong. I'm breaking the law. I'm sorry. He stood up and punched my father's lawyer in the face and sicked a dog on my dad. And so it was amidst this legal uh, um, outrage uh, that my family eventually moved in, as my dad affectionately right. called us, the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. <laughs> and so that's the shock. My dad, who literally just years earlier um, uh, would re- knows poverty and hardship. My mom, a similar story, and yet they're raising their kids in an environment that, as my grandfather once said to me, it, it was a dangerous dream to have to think that one day my grandchild would be going to Stanford or Yale. He would give me these speeches on my graduations and say, even if I had articulated this aloud in front of some people, it could have led to uh, harsh recriminations uh, from folk uh, that I would dare uh, uh, articulate what you're experiencing uh, as a child. So. You, well, you. Let me just ask you this, though. Um, you, you grew up in that town. Uh, what was your experience? Because there must not have been uh, many African American uh, kids in your school and so, I, your community. You know, it, it's one of the. Uh, it's one of the most privileged places to grow up. My best friends are still in that community. Um, it was a community of love and caring and goodness. But yeah, when you're different, and people's understandings of African Americans are from TV and media. You face a, a lot of uh, sort of subtle knocks on your – and what my parents were always w- worried about is that my self-esteem or uh, my self-concept would be so warped in an America that didn't value African-Americans, that didn't see them as equal or that had subtle, vicious – but yet vicious bigotry that said you're not smart enough or qualified enough. So I have painful experiences from my childhood of being different and – people making assumptions or facing discrimination. But I I say that in the context of it was a blessed community to grow up in. I mean, I'm still close to my teachers who went out of their way to help me. I mean, you have to understand this is a community that by the time I was 18 years old, but for the love of this community, coaches who were guys that just worked full-time jobs and would come back and they would care more about me at times, it seemed, than their own kids on the field. Um, Teachers, you know, my Mr. Walker, one of my great uh, eighth grade teachers. I mean, he was a guy that forced a kid that was afraid of speaking in front of crowds to get on the stage and do the school play. He did the school dance where the moment I first ever asked a girl to dance and the first moment I ever had to face rejection at the same time, uh, he's a guy that's good practice for politics. Good practice for politics. You know, it was basketball. It's one of my, this is, these are folks that are heroes to me. And, uh, and really con- collaborated so that by the time I was 18 years old, I was president of my class, honor student, uh, high school All-American football player. You know, uh, it, it, it was a, a period of my life that, you know, it, it, despite some of the challenges I faced as a middle class, as you said, uh, African-American, the reality is is 
I, I have so much to be thankful for and, and, and so much indebtedness to Harrington Park, Old Japan. You know, this issue of race is so deep and so has so many tentacles in our society, so, much, so many complications. You, when, when Skip Gates did his exploration of your lineage, the other element of it was that you had uh, white great-grandparents and you one of your grandparents and and in your political career uh particularly in the early parts of your political career one of the challenges was you were accused of not being black enough yeah well i came up through urban politics in a majority black city and ran against one of the more epic figures in new jersey politics um, sharp james sharp james who was Friends with the Clintons. I mean, he was a powerful, powerful man. And I had the audacity in a city that was struggling with poverty and uh, environmental desolation and challenges to come up in a, as a grassroots tenant organizer and young lawyer. Uh, you know, I was taking on um, this uh, this icon. And, and it was an epic clash. It actually was captured in a movie uh, called Street Fight that was nominated for an Oscar for crying out loud. Um, it was one of the one of the first of a lot of generational fights uh, between the the next generation of African Americans and the the. In fact, President Obama faced that when he challenged yeah. Bobby Rush, yes, um, and and lost just like I did in my first attempt to challenge yes. uh, Sharp James. So you have these African Americans of that generation. They weren't just elected leaders. They were they were uh, uh, trailblazers. They were. Barrier breakers. Yeah, no, they were they were part of the civil rights uh, movement. But my my question is for you personally. Um, you know, o- Obama wrote a book called Dreams from My Father, which I'm, I'm sure you've read uh, about the challenges of being um, uh, of being uh, biracial and sort of finding his identity. Uh, and I guess I'm wondering, did you have you struggled with that? And when when you were attacked as you were, uh, did that create in you any kind of struggle in terms of your own identity, or were you very clear? I mean, both your parents are African American, lived the African American experience. Were you clear on who on on your identity from the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, that's the difference between. Uh one of the many differences between President Obama and I is um, he is a biracial kid where he had a white mother. Right. Um, both my parents are are black and both my parents are steeped in um, African-American culture. Both are graduates of historically black colleges. Both, my mom is a, you know, a Delta, a black fraternity. I grew up in a Lynx family, another black African-American organization. So from the time I was a kid from growing up in black church, growing up in a black family, uh, uh, my identity was very, very frozen and strong and rooted. My parents, especially raising me in a, in a predominantly white community, really made sure that I was connected to places like Newark, uh, uh, to cultural events, to history. Um, so my challenges with race, which um, you're right, it's it still continues to be one of the more insidious forces undermining America's truth. It is a cancer, um, uh, historic racism, uh, implicit racism, um, uh, and, and we can get into that. It, it, it's still a cancer on the soul of mm-hmm. America. Um, but my experiences in my life of, of discrimination, of being that 20-something black kid pulled over by the police, um, fearing for my life uh, from law enforcement, um, you know, those experiences of mine um, uh, were sort of shook your soul. But I had I had these deep roots uh, from parents who never made me question my beauty, never made me question uh, my purpose. And mm-hmm. my parents were very clear with me that black culture, luxuriate in it, enjoy it, know who you are, know the honor of the history, the chords of American history, whether it's Irish, Italian. Uh, Chinese in America that are so strong that go back to our earliest of days that you are a part of a, this legacy of struggle. And my parents wanted me to define my blackness, not just on the foods that I ate or the music that I listened to. They were so ardent in trying to say that you are a part of an American core that is all about struggle and it's all about uh, the fight for more inclusiveness and making this nation more just. So, you know, I, I think in my experiences in Newark, um, 
you know, uh, the only thing I felt when I heard things like Sharp James said is I just, I, I hurt because I saw how much it hurt my parents that they taught their child to do exactly what I was doing in Newark. And yet a man of, that they saw as their peer would, would try to attack him in such uh, ways. I guess it, it's not just about um, lineage, but it's also about class. I mean, you've had like a storybook life in some ways. Uh, you've, you know, you went to Stanford. You were all everything there. You played on the football team. You were student body president. You went to Oxford. You went to Yale Law School. Uh, and so... There, it isn't just a, a distinction of race, but a distinction of class. And then you go from uh, Yale. Uh, well, before let me say something. One, one, Please. Well, then you go from Yale to Newark. I, I'll follow up on on Yale in a second. You went from Yale to Newark, uh, and you uh, you came from an entirely different experience uh, than as a class matter than the people you were vying to represent first as a lawyer and then as a politician uh how do you had you how did you overcome that barrier well I, I, look i the gift that stanford gave me was giving me the freedom to immerse myself in um the, the the work that my parents told me about so starting to work in places like east palo alto east menlo park and falling in love with that work and i i knew by the time i was 18 19 years old that this is what I wanted to do. And in fact, this is who I wanted to be with. Uh, you know, I want to be with the, the folks that are facing outrageous uh, oppression. I wanted to live in communities that, that were in struggle. Uh, and so from East uh, Palo Alto, East Harlem, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, uh, while I was doing what I was doing to get my education, um, I, I wanted to stay close to the communities. Alice Walker has this incredible book uh, called In Search of My Mother's Garden. And I still remember reading a couple pages that so spoke to my heart uh, in terms of my aspirations. And I'll sort of quote it or paraphrase it because I might get a few words wrong. But she talks about she has a letter in it to black revolutionary artists. And you have to understand when you're a kid in your teens and 20s, you're you're so upset at this country in the fact that it swears that it's a country of liberty and justice for all, but you see clearly in so many communities where it's falling short of that. And so she writes this letter that I thought was speaking directly to my heart where she said, the real um, revolutionary is always concerned with the least glamorous stuff, the raising a child's reading level from third grade to fourth, the filling out food stamps uh, for people because they've got to eat revolution or not. The real black revolutionary artist is always close enough to the people to be there for them when they are needed. And so, you know, as a young man, for me, as you went through 10 years of higher education, I always knew it was a journey uh, to get to my community. And and when I say my community, I'm not just talking about black people. Um, It's the people I feel like I and one generation, literally my father grew up in a, in a community like the ones, the one I live in right now. We've got 100 United States senators. Um, I, I think I'm the only one that lives in an inner city, all black community. My, the median income in my community is $14,000. Uh, everybody's focus was on the shooting in Washington last week that ran 24-7 on CNN. Well, there was a shooting on my block uh, right across the street from me. Uh, around the same time. And those shootings happen every single day and CNN doesn't give a damn or doesn't seem to really care. Um, when on my street, there are uh, recovering drug addicts in the, in the place across the street. So I want to be there with people that don't benefit from this country. And, and that was sort of my uh, I get call. that you wanted. I get that you wanted to be there. I guess my question is, how hard was it to persuade the people who you, who are, who you were there to represent uh, that you were uh, of them, and that you weren't just using them to advance your own your own career. Well, look, you and I both know this. Uh, there's a saying that "Who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say." And um, you know, one of the things Newark did for me is it humbled me more than I ever thought. It broke me in ways, broke my heart. I always say, if, if you don't. If your heart's never been broken by this country, you don't love her enough. And, and, and Newark has shattered me in many, many pieces. And uh, a lot of folks in that community rebuilt me. And so when I, when I moved into Newark, and, and as I said, I've worked in inner cities before, I, I moved into a section of the city that 
I was shaken by in my first days. I mean, literally moving my stuff in um, to the neighborhood. I still live in this neighborhood and my stuff was stolen out of my car as I was moving back and forth into this one room boarding house next to a crack house across the street from the projects. And um, you're right. The transition, especially in this neighborhood, was a little jarring in the sense of, okay, my, my, my college life is over. <laughs> I'm now an adult and I'm now uh, starting a career as a young attorney. And um, there are, and I'm living in the neighborhood. Like now this is the first time in my life. I wasn't going back to a dorm, but I was living at night, listening to gunshots, looking outside the bathroom window, watching a 24 hour, uh, drug trade. And there's something I found in my life and everything I've done is that when you kind of get to the end of everything that's familiar and you jump into the darkness that uh, God or the universe sends you people that will guide you. And that's what happened to me in Newark. And, you know, I always, one of my favorite moments of my life was the arrogance with which I went to the tenant president and those projects around me knocking on her door and sort of saying, I'm here, you know, uh, uh, sit down, don't worry, you know, as you were. Did, did she <laughs> greet you with the same enthusiasm? No, no. Here I had dreamed about finally living uh, in, in in the community I felt connected to. Um, and her response was she couldn't be bothered with me. And while I might have thought somewhere uh, in the arrogant corners of my mind, I'm, I'm riding in and I'm going to help save folks. Uh, she looked at me actually with pity and like, you need to be saved, kid. You know, you need to get your head screwed on straight. And in those first conversations, one of the things she did to me, which is one of my favorite moments of my life, because it was like lesson number one from from my, my city was she takes me down to Martin Luther King Boulevard, uh, where I was living across the street from the projects now. Uh, the next year, I would literally move into those buildings and would live there for about eight years. Uh, she says to me, tell me what you see. You want to help me? Then tell me what you see. And I describe the neighborhood just like I just described it to you. Projects, crack house, uh, just describe the neighborhood. And the more I talked, the more angry she looked. And finally, she just looks at me and she says with dismissively, you can't help me. And she starts storming away from me. And I run after her and I grab her from behind uh, as respectfully as possible. Just almost like, I don't know if I was just angry, confused. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then she looks at me hard and she says, um, boy, you need to understand something. The world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you just see problems and despair and darkness, that's all there's ever going to be. And you can't help me. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see God, you see love, uh, you see beauty, uh, you see dignity, you, then you can help me. And she walks away from me, leaving me there, you know, thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus ended the lesson. And, and then I did something that let was... Me, let me just stop you for a second, and uh, we take a short break. I, I hate to break on such, a, uh, such an inspiring point, but we, we need to take a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Sure. I want you to pick up your point, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I asked you that question is that uh, when... Uh, then State Senator Obama spoke at the 2004 convention. One line in his speech that sticks in my head uh, was, we have to end the slander that says a, a, a black child with a book is acting white. And it spoke to sort of these class issues that, uh, and so there are uh discriminatory attitudes that go both ways that are so destructive. And so that's why I asked the question. But I don't, I don't, first of all, I so miss Obama and her husband uh, <laughs> so much. Uh, um, I, I suspect you've used that line before. I, I sir, <laughs> you, you of any person knows when a politician is giving a line that he knows it can get a chuckle and, and, yeah. and, and break the mood. Look, I, that's not the black community that I know where anybody has slandered folks because they're getting a book. I come from a black community where on an eighth grade graduation, it is a party. People are celebrating. People are rejoicing. I come from a black community. When I sit in a black church, the pastor, if a kid got a good report card, takes time out of a sermon to point kids out. Um, so I, I, I know where these tropes come from at times, that the way I see them, where uh, people want to talk about that it's not cool in the black community to read but that is uh, such a crock, and um, I challenge anybody, walk with me to any of my schools uh, and see how much education is valued and revered in the black community and the black culture. I come from 
a, a, a culture in our country that its heroes are people like Booker T. Washington, who brick by brick built the Tuskegee Institute, where Mary McLeod Bethune, one of the greatest educators this country's ever had, are hailed as heroes still in black in, in black communities today. So the way we talk about race in this country sometimes frustrates the hell out of me because I see the struggle every day. I'll go back to it Thursday night if Mitch McConnell could let this health care bill die as it should. And I'll go back into a black community. And, and on my block, as I told, described to you before, um, not a lot of people of wealth, um, but they understand and the kids in that community understand um, that there's an urgency to get an education. In fact, if you saw the things I've seen in, in my 20 years in Newark, uh, I remember a great woman in Montclair, uh, New Jersey, do- donated to me like, I don't know, 500 children's books. And I've done a lot of things, given out free hot dogs at barbecues. But people, and I'm not exaggerating, lined up around the block. Um, we had to go back and try to find more books because they wanted children's books for their kids. And so please understand, people try to make these differentiations um, based upon race between what white kids might want and black kids might want. Um, all parents have the common aspirations for their kids. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, in Newark, in Camden, in Patterson, in Passaic, uh, it's the same hunger uh, uh, for the American dream. And everybody knows that the pathway to get there is through education. And the irony and the awful evilness in this country is that just based on your zip code, um, we still are a nation that's going to depend, uh, that's going to determine what kind of education that you get. Um, it is a violence that is being conducted against children in this country when they're being, it's a new type of slavery. It's a new type of, uh, and it's not imprisoning the body, but it's imprisoning the mind by denying uh, people access uh, to education. And it's so insidious when I was coming up in Newark that, in fact, the, the uh, woman named Miss Martinez, who was the education writer for the Wall Street Journal, she no longer is, but at the time I met her, she was, she was working for one of the most famous periodicals on the planet Earth. And her story is the story of so many kids in Newark because when the schools weren't providing families that could, they would use fake addresses in the, in the predominantly white suburban towns. And those towns would use taxpayer dollars to hire private investigators to go follow around children, often minority children, see where they go home. And Miss Martinez was one of those kids that was caught. Uh, brought into the principal's office, not allowed to call her parents, forced to confi- sign a confession. The irony is she was pulled out of a journalism class. And so the desperate fight still in America that there are families and communities still fighting just to have the same kind of education I got in an affluent town. Uh, so please don't tell me that there are that isn't that that reading in, in Newark or or black communities is considered acting white. Yeah. No, it's acting interesting. Like- you know, I had this. I had Arnie Duncan on this. A podcast some time ago, and he talked about his mother, who you may know ran for years. I mean, heroic woman, uh, an inner city reading program, and she was. And he talked about the fact that um, uh, gangs threatened her life if she showed up the next day. So maybe that experience was different than the ones that. I, I, but that was that was the sort of. You know, I just think there are a lot of obstacles. I agree with you on the immorality of uh, school uh, funding. and But it's uh, deeper the, than that. And, and, and this is what I'm going to do every day in the Senate to try to wake people up. Because it's, it, 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 if that was just the problem, if it was just uh, uh, that my schools and, and communities were facing – Difficult challenges in school funding. No, I agree with you. I'm making the same point. Yeah, no, I no, think there, are, there are there are the 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 remnants, not the remnants, but the impacts of generations of discrimination of the d uh, of the uh, stripping of economic assets from these communities. The the lack of opportunity, particularly for young men, right. uh, and the pervasiveness. Of drugs and gangs and violence, right, but, but, all all are a part of the equation. Uh, so, but uh, I want to I want to expand that equation because we don't we don't talk about what it means that kids in my community in Harrington Park and kids in my community in, in Newark um, commit drug crimes at the same rate. No difference between blacks and whites. But the parents of kids in Newark are going to be arrested for that uh, four or more times for those drug crimes. At the la- the two of the three last presidents admitted to felony drug use, and they talk about it. Half of Congress might make jokes about using marijuana. But in my community, 
and communities of color mm-hmm. and poor communities, people are preyed upon. So you know the percentage of children coming from so-called broken homes that were broken by the government because they're arresting their family members, casting them into poverty. But we're not even done. This criminal justice system has done more harm. Literally, a university study came out that showed that we have 20% less poverty in the country if we just had incarceration rates the same as our industrial peers. But let's not even stop there. You said economic injustice. People should know that cities and the poverty in cities was by design by the federal government through FHA policies, through redlining, packing poverty in, uh, making it impossible for people to lose, to leave or get the kind of loans and opportunities other families got. But the equation should go further than that. Um, Newark, uh, Detroit, I could go through the, the cities uh, and the rural places. I just came back from Alabama, just came back from uh, Louisiana, where the environment is so toxic. I came through politics in Newark when we had epidemic levels of lead poisoning epidemic levels of lead poisoning, but even elevated blood lead levels uh, is correlates with uh, uh, a poor performance in school, mm-hmm. learning disabilities. Yeah. And so when you have thousands and thousands of children who have lead, what's the number one reason why kids miss school in the United States of America? Asthma. Well, the asthma rates in inner cities are two, three, right. four times. We literally have a city that's so toxic. And it's not just my cities in Newark and Camden where kids have to get bring bottled water to school because they can't drink because there's lead in the water fountains. Everybody talks about Flint as they should, but Reuters just came out with a thousand localities around this country where kids have three times the lead levels in their blood. So let's go now back to these communities where kids are what they're really struggling with. They're struggling with economic dislocation. They're struggling with poor resources for education. I can take you to school buildings when I was coming up that are the condition you wouldn't want those Buildings should have been yeah. condemned. They're, they're struggling with environmental toxins yeah. at, at levels. We have super funds in every state, every single state. There was a good old days when Reagan, Mitch McConnell reauthorized cleanups for those. Those, those days are gone in America, as you know this, in this day of like uh, uh, Grover Norquist, no taxes. And so we actually have super fund sites increasing in America. Well, super fund sites like the ones that are in Newark. If you, if you have a child born within three miles of a Superfund site, your chances of autism are dramatically higher. Your chances of birth defects are dramatically higher. Right. So the obstacles to children in this country are not just around the basics of education. It is their environment, physical I, environment. I, I'm in t- total agreement with you. That, and then there's that, one, that was the point I was trying to make. And then there's but, one, more, one more area yeah. that we're not even talking about, which is something we as a country should talk about, which is just trauma. Just the mm-hmm. ideas of emotional trauma. Fourth uh, of July coming up right now in Newark. I used to always it hurt me. This is the the country's Independence Day. So much pride. I have so much love of America. But the reason why as mayor I would hurt is because when firecrackers would go off, I'd get calls from parents because kids are so traumatized by gunshots in their neighborhood. It's like post traumatic stress. They hear the firecrackers and they dive under their their. Their, their couches and their beds. I walked into a women's prison about three weeks ago, and I turned to the uh, I turned to the warden, uh, it's a federal uh, uh, penitentiary, and I said, "How many of the women here were traumatized in their in their youth? Have been sexually assaulted, sexually abused, um, uh, faced this kind of trauma?" And she said, "95 percent." And so we don't talk about the psychological damages. We don't talk about the environmental damages. We don't talk about the economic disadvantages. And we don't talk enough about that whole equation and how it's working against the most valuable natural resource in our country, which is not oil, gas, or coal. It's the genius of our yeah, kids. That we I, I, I agree with you completely, Senator. But uh, let me return to your uh, story. You, uh, you had this sort of, uh, as I said, storybook life. And you got elected as a city council member when you were 29 years old, and you were a, uh, a force for reform on a council that wasn't particularly receptive to it. Uh, and then you ran for mayor the first time, and you lost. Uh, what was that experience? What was the experience of a losing like for a guy who, in many ways, had been winning all his life? Um, you know, we all say this. It's almost become trite that we learn more from our failures and from our successes. And it was a really profoundly painful moment, especially because I lived in a city, again, where you have this power got, powerful mayor who is one of the most uh, deft at using his power to crush his enemies. 
And, um, you know, I had gone through a long period of my life from 1998 to the 2002 race where I would have police pull me aside, warn me that I'm being followed. There was an incident that got a lot of publicity where my phones were being tapped by the local law enforcement, um, where my windows on my car smashed, tires slashed. Um, and that was just me. But the people who were supporting me, I had people coming up to me saying, I, I can't help you anymore. I've been threatened. I'll lose mm-hmm. my job. And so after that loss, it was an election that was so uh, had so much national attention. I was getting job offers from Newark to Norway, let's say. But the people who supported me, I still remember one bar owner who allowed me to hold my meetings there. Um, suddenly the ABC um, alcohol beverage control was raiding his bar. Uh, there was a guy that drove me around that suddenly had code enforcement showing up. Mm-hmm. And what inspired me, though, in that, and I think that often during the darkest times – in our lives or darkest times in our countries, we often see the greatest moments of heroism, whether it's a Muslim ban where I, 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 I was so moved when I was at Dulles Airport and seeing one of the best moments of America I've ever seen, you know, hundreds of people filling an airport, cheering Muslim families coming off, guys with kippahs on cheering mm-hmm. Muslims. Well, this was one of those moments where Newarker after Newarker after Newarker, who had so much more on the line than I did. Um, even the building I was living in in Brick Towers, it was which taken is, over. Uh, which is I'm sorry, the public housing yes. in Newark that it no longer exists. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's uh, right up the street from where I live now. And uh, but the, the the mayor took it over. The housing authority took it over. So now it's public housing, and ran it into the ground. So now my my I'm I'm literally running around buying space heaters for my residents because as I learned that the art of heating your apartment with your oven, which is just not the safest mm. thing in the world. Yeah. Um, and so, but Newarker after Newarker, uh, le- grassroots leader after grassroots leader said, don't give up. Don't leave. You've got to stay in the fight. And, and, and I, I would do it all over again. You're going to win. You're going to be the mayor of this city. And so for me, it was, uh, a, a power. I felt like I let people down. I felt like I failed people. I felt like I was responsible um, for so many people who went from fragile economics to, to suddenly being jobless. Uh, yeah. But um, it was an instructive moment to me that sometimes a loss uh, is the precursor to a massive breakthrough. And as you know. And uh, you did. Yeah. yeah. You, the next time you won by 72%, yeah. Sharp James went on to serve a different kind of term in a federal penitentiary after that. You know, you, you, it's interesting. You talked about the scene at the, that inspiring scene at the airports, and you said uh, people wearing kippahs, yarmulkes. And it, it raises in my mind your interesting faith journey because uh, your family was, I think, AME, and uh, you, you're a Baptist, and yet you have a very close relationship with the Jewish community. You formed a, a, a in Yale, they have these secret societies. You formed one, the Eliezer Society, with Jewish uh, students there. Um, and 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 I'm told that you can you can recite Torah portions in Hebrew. Is that right? Uh, I know some Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've definitely uh, yeah. spent a lot. Well, of- I've been bar mitzvah. I can't do that. <laughs> so I just want you to know. I mean, uh, my rabbi is long gone, so I can make that uh, I can make that statement. But my my question to you is, um, um, what drew you to that? Because um, it, it, it's striking. Well, the boy says in, you know, that the big tragedy of man is not that they're poor, all men know poverty. Uh, and he goes through a list of the, the, what the tragedy goes. The real tragedy of man is that man knows so little of man. And um, I had a faith journey where, you know, having a very solid grounding in Christianity, I, I felt a yearning to know other faiths. And I actually had this almost funny incident where I stumbled into a Chabad house and was uh, 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 embraced by a rabbi who we did a challenge with each other um, where we basically said, um, let's know each other, um, but let's take time to read. And I, I still remember we just – it was just – I'm in Oxford. I have tons of time. I'm trying to read uh, different canons that I thought were important that I hadn't read in college. And he says, I'll give you a book. You know, you give me a book. We agreed on that deal. And so the first book I gave him was Malcolm X's autobiography. And I'm embarrassed to say I was a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford. The first book he gave me was Night by Elie Wiesel. Hmm. And I just devoured the books he was giving Both me. Both powerful. Yes. And before I knew it, I was studying the Torah, which I found liberating in many ways. 
um, and uh, and it just started me on this odyssey. And since then, I've you know studied Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, had some great in Newark, some great uh, Islam, Islamic teachers. And um, I'm just a, I just love uh, man's conception, human humans conception of the divine. Um, and uh, my life has been enriched by it. And I'm I think my struggle. Um, in my own life is just to live in accordance with my deepest beliefs and trying to create that kind of uh, integrity is very hard. I, I have a saying where I say, before you speak to me about your religion, first show it to me and how you treat other people. Um, at the end of the day, um, who we are uh, uh, tells our truth and, and, and we tell our truth by what we do, not what we believe. And, and so that's always a struggle for me and how far to take that. Um, you know, my uh, a lot of personal decisions I made over my lives. I'm a vegan, for for example. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, a lot of that has to do with health, but a lot of it has to do is can I simplify my life uh, so that uh, to the least extent possible, I'm participating in things that don't fit with my values. And uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with eating meat, and I have, I'm not one of these vegans that <laughs> looks down on folks. People, I have enough trouble uh, living in accordance with my own values. I have time to judge other people. But, um, you know, when I began to understand what's involved in the industrial animal agricultural industry, I said that I, I can't condone that. And, and um, I want to fight to stop that, as most Americans do. Uh, and that's why we have laws that are beginning to change. Uh, but um, I'm trying to find ways as I get older every year to simplify my life to the extent that I'm living in better accordance to the values I have. We're uh, going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Senator Cory Booker. On that point about um, Judaism, you know, there was a historic alliance between the black community and the Jewish community during the civil rights movement. Uh, Many uh, of the uh, leaders of the civil rights movement or or supporting the leaders of the civil rights movement were prominent members of the Jewish community. A riff uh, uh, developed over the years between the two communities. Why is that, and is that, a, is that an unbreachable chasm? Well, again, I, I, and you know this, we, we often simplify things, um, but it's, the history is a lot more complex than that. <laughs> I think you mean I often simplify things. No, I think we, we do. I do. I do. <laughs> well, help me understand. Yeah. I, so, you know, there there's our black and Jewish alliances in this country that have been consistent and unyielding. And I can tell you black and Jewish leaders in, in New Jersey who have never had a riff. They, they've always been working on issues of poverty, injustice. Um, and yet there's been celebrated moments where there's been uh, blacks and Jews that have had had those riffs, you know, what happened in Crown Heights. But people talk about the Crown Heights riots, but they never talked about some of the amazing black and Jewish leaders there that held things together and kept dialogue and continue to work together. And so I, I, what I celebrate and what I choose to continue to focus on is, uh, as an African-American Christian, is the uh, uh, great Jewish leaders that, again, live their faith every single day. There are synagogues in my state who do extraordinary things in uh, uh, disadvantaged communities of, of many different races and backgrounds. You know, Judaism, one of the things I celebrate Judaism, unlike Christianity or Islam, is it's not a conversion of religion. Uh, in fact, if you ask to be Jewish, the rabbi is supposed to turn you down three times. But what Judaism is really about is uh, some very powerful ideals. And so yesterday I was on the Capitol steps with John Lewis right. uh, uh, doing sort of a sit-in, sit-out thing uh, that was just beautiful. How it, Around the health care bill. Yeah, and it just evolved organically in the night until hundreds of people came out to sit on the Capitol steps as we just discussed it. And at one point, a great young man who runs a homeless organization with a kippah, with a yarmulke on. And I have this, again, you, you sometimes have to pinch yourself. You have these moments where I'm sitting on the Capitol steps and my hero is sitting next to me, John Lewis, and this beautiful Jew is sitting next to me who's helping to run a homeless organization. And I find myself giving a Devar Torah to the two of them about what I think humanity is all about. One of my favorite moments in the Torah where um, – uh, uh, Abraham, these are our, uh, our three major faiths in this country are Abrahamic faiths. Abraham is sitting there having in pain, having just circumcised himself, and he sees strangers, complete strangers, 
approaching him in the distance. And what the Torah says is really beautiful. He didn't just wave to them or invite them in, which would have been epic in a, a, a level of kindness in itself. It says he gets up. Remember, he's in pain and enthusiastically runs to greet these folks, bring them into his tent to give them food and water and wine. Uh, and then they reveal themselves to be angels. And I wish we all, Emerson said, that only which we have within can we see without. If we see no angels, it's because we harbor none. If only we could all see each other as angels, especially those people of different political parties or think differently. So, But that's the, that would be the story, as I said to the two great men on my left and right. That alone, that our faith is grounded first and foremost in this idea of goodness, kindness, the Hebrew words chesed and sadaka, that this is the one of my, I believe it's one of the fundamental reasons for life. It's goodness, kindness, decency. But then the, the story takes this turn that doesn't make sense where uh, these angels give him the blessing. Uh, uh, and then they say, okay, and this makes a mayor shudder. They say, I'm going to go destroy a city now. They're going to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to destroy a city. Now, I'm telling you right now as a guy of faith that if angels appeared to me and told me they were going to do something – I would probably be on my knees just uh, 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 in witness. But that's not what Abraham teaches us. He stands up and starts arguing with angels, fighting with angels. And, and to me, this is the story of Judaism. When, when Moses sees people praying to a golden calf, I'm going to give you the Hebrew phrase. He literally, God says, okay, I'm going to destroy these people, give you some other people to lead. And, and Moses now argues with God and says in the Hebrew is, if you destroy these people, erase me from your book. Here you have from Moses to Abraham, people that are saying, I don't care if it's God himself. If you are committing an injustice in my midst, I am morally obligated to fight against that injustice. And, and so those are the two pillars that I, I am imperfectly every day living my life in accordance to goodness, kindness, decency to others, and to be an agent, even if you have to fight God himself or, or herself and, or acts of God, you have an obligation uh, to, to fight against injustice. And so this is what I love about people who live their faith. I, 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 am, I am hurt. And again, we often have spent so much time judging people, we, we forget to love them. And, and I don't like, and this is why, you know, I don't know what if this is a successful formula in the kind of politics that um, that is is winning these days about vilifying others, vilifying so much that one of the moments I'll never forget watching the Republican National Convention, Republican uh, presidential debates, and seeing my governor, Chris Christie, who I can write a dissertation on my disagreements, but I can text him on his cell phone right now as a friend to ask him about his family. Um, I, I, I can't stand things he does, uh, um, but... I still see his divinity and yeah, still see no, his dignity. I, 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 listen, I, the, one of the reasons why uh, I do this podcast is with people across the political spectrum is I think it's harder to hate each other when we know each right. other. And so you'll remember this moment. Republican debate, Chris Christie is being pilloried for hugging Barack Obama. Yes. And, 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 and that, to me, of all the issues I want to debate— During Hurricane Sandy when the president— I, mean, I remember arrived. this hug. I watched this hug. The president of the United States, who, by the way, and I, and I wish Barack Obama was known more for the person he is, a guy who at times of personal trial for me is the kind of guy that calls you on the telephone himself. He's a president of the United States. You get a call. This is the kind of goodness that President Obama embodied. He flies into a state in, in crisis. Chris Christie was, had moments of public crying. I, I lost people in Newark as mayor. Barack Obama descends from these steps, and the two men hug. Now, I'm a hugger, first of all. It wasn't even a great hug. It's one of those awkward male hugs. <laughs> and, and now I'm watching that we have so vilified each other in this country that we are going to castigate two Americans for touching each other, for extending human decency, to fight an act of God, to, to say this is unjust to a Republican or a Democrat, and we're going to do something about it. That's where we've come. And, 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 and so to, it's hard for me, even in my party, I saw Mitch McConnell coming up the steps right uh, up the steps right before I was on my way here, coming up the escalator. I think what they're trying to do is so discordant with Christian values that you're trying to rip health care, Medicaid away from folks, all to give a tax cut, thirty three billion dollar tax cut to the right. wealthiest. Now this 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 uh, this uh, malign spirit is very much on display in Washington. Yes, now. but when I saw Mitch McConnell, what did I do? Did I did I cuss at him? No. 
I looked him in his eyes and I said, hello. And he smiled and said hello to me. Now, I had a moment in, with Chris Christie. I'll never forget. I, it was a day marriage equality was coming out of the, our Senate and Christie was going to veto it. And I happened to have a meeting with him that day about a major development project I had poured my heart, soul, countless hours of my time into that was going to give kids in Newark into apprenticeship programs. It was going to create uh, housing, affordable housing for my community, jobs, everything. I needed the governor to get this done. I happened to be going down to the Capitol the day that marriage equality is being done. Now, I am passionate advocate, not just for equal marriage rights in this country. We still live in a nation where most states you can get fired just for being gay and have no legal recourse. Um, this was an issue I fought in, in Newark, often among some of my own residents who thought mm-hmm. in 2006 called me up to cuss me out, not anonymously, told me who they were just for raising the pride Well, flag. you yourself have spoken as a young man. You spoke about your conversion on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. So I go into a meet with Chris Christie. We come out from an hour meeting, and the press is there. Did you give it to him on marriage equality? Did you whatever? And I, I just looked, I said, absolutely not. I could have used my one hour with the governor of the state of New Jersey to, to argue with him, to condemn him for his blocking justice. Or I could have spent that hour working on my development project that's going to create jobs and opportunity for my community. And, and, and so I, I just wonder, you know, that the, the thing I love about my country is that word, love. I, I really think that our best moments are, despite our differences, where we – and by the way, we don't, we don't hesitate or equivocate to fight injustice, to stand up to power, to condemn actions. I'm not talking about in any way Martin Luther King condemned – Gandhi fought and condemned the most powerful forces on the planet Earth. But what's beautiful about them, what's beautiful about our history is it never undermined our ability to see the divinity, the dignity in others, to be to express that goodness, that decency. We need that in our country because I fear the rifts that we have are deepening and that we need to, amongst all the issues that we're talking about in this country, return to the ideals of our Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, I condemn as being a document full of bigotry. Native Americans refer to as savages in it. And so I'm not one of these people that wants to hail – uh, the, the the founding documents, I want to speak them like they are, but the genius in them is that they said if this country is going to make it, at the end of the Declaration of Independence was one of the greatest declarations of interdependence. It was this incredible understanding that if we're going to make it as a country, we have to have an unusual commitment to each other because we're not being founded because we all are the same race or other countries benefit from that, that they all speak alike, they look alike and the like. This was a country they knew it was diverse. The only way we were going to hold together is if we had an unusual commitment. And so they say at the end of the Declaration of Independence, which you know, that last sentence, we must mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Never before in our country, uh, in, in, in my opinion, and that's overly dramatic. But I feel like the challenge of my generation now is to return to that ideal of sacred honor, uh, is to say, I'm going to fight against you if you're doing something that's going to hurt people, but I'm not. it's not going to stop me from seeing your truth and seeing who you are and understanding that if this country is going to make it, I actually need you, that we are interwoven in this destiny, um, that I can't escape you. Uh, I can't send you off someplace else. And that the only way to get there is for me to find ways that I can get there with you, not just against you. That's a, that, that, that is a... Uh a great aspiration for the country at a time when we seem to be retreating into tribalism and there's all kinds of forces pushing us there, including the media environment, uh, the way our politics is organized. Um, What gives you hope? Well, I I think what gives me hope is that I I see this on a daily – and this is one, again, reason why I love Newark is because – I get to witness, often in the toughest conditions, uh, I get to witness uh, things like that Dulles Airport. That that gave me hope. Um, sudden activism of people. You know, everybody's looking at the election in Georgia for us Democrats. What a horrible defeat uh, for Republicans, whatever. I look at that as, wait a minute, a whole bunch of people that – sat on the sidelines before are engaging. I mean, mm-hmm. the incredible voter turnout in a special election when mm-hmm. it, you and I both know special, I, I got a, in a district that the Republicans have held for 40 right, years. But this is what's beautiful about that because, you know, Alice Walker said the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And you and I can condemn, and I will continue to the the divisions in our country. But 
the reality is, is you and I both have traveled this country enough to know the goodness of folk. And so what worries me is not that we're not a good country, not that we're not a loving country. It's that people allow their inability to do everything about a problem to undermine their determination to do something. They, they don't understand what King said so eloquently that what we will have to repent for in this day and age is not that just the vitriolic words, and we turn on cable TV, you hear a lot of vitriolic words. He well, said, what we repent for is not from just, the Twitter and the White House. Yeah. And so what he says we will have to repent for is not just the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but it's the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. You, you and I both know that in our politics, to me, the bigger problem is a lack of participation. To me, we, I, I remember being at an animal rights event, humane society event, and someone coming up to me after an event where we were talking about compassion and humanity to all God's creatures. And they show me that they just, what the tweet they just sent to Paul Ryan, literally vilifying him to the extent of not recognizing his humanity. We don't understand that those small actions that we make, small actions of, of love, resonate far more than we know. But our silence, our lack of action is actually creating the evils that we condemn. So the obvious question is, given how passionately you feel about this, you've been mentioned relative to 2020 and the parties looking – the question I get more than any other when I travel is, well, who are the leaders of our party in the future? Who could emerge and and lead? Uh, Is that something that you would consider? So let me answer this to a guy who knows it well. Um, I, I think that politicians make a terrible mistake if they're thinking about aspirations for another office because I think it under, undermines their integrity where they are. Let's go within a subject we've already talked about. I think our food systems in America are so broken and we don't understand the damage they're doing to communities, the damage they're doing in terms of enforcing poverty, the damage they're doing in climate change. And so I'm a guy that's going to criticize policies that, frankly, in a lot of states that are important for presidential elections, uh, would uh, find that very much of a threat. And so my loyalty is to the position I'm in right now and to the integrity I'm trying to live every day. And so if I start thinking about the future like that or engaging in that stuff, I'm telling you right now, it, 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 I, I've seen this. I think it, I think it would make me a, a, a lesser of a senator. And so what I've learned – if you would come to me, in fact, the worst quote I've ever given to a reporter was when I was mayor and wasn't thinking about my future. And somebody asked me, would you want to be a United States senator? And I, I said, if I ever talk about running for the United States Senate, I, I said somebody should do some physical damage to my body. Um, but I tell you, me being a throw caution to the wind, 100% present mayor fighting for my communities opened up opportunities for me in the future. So I, I don't know what um, the future is going to bring. I'm not making predictions, but I want to unleash the fullness of who I am right now. And I want to call out injustice where I see it, whether it's in industrial animal agriculture, whether it's uh, uh, the toxic environmental issues mm-hmm. in poor uh, communities. Criminal justice reform, presumably. Look, my pollsters told me when I was running for this seat that that's not even in the top 15 or 20 issues that New Jerseyans care about. Um, but I knew that this was my first time going all around the states, and I don't care if I'm in front of a Jewish audience, a Latino audience, wealthy white audience, poor white audience. I'm going to talk about this issue every single place I go because if you want to talk to me about the biggest cancer on the soul of this country, it's our, it's our prison systems. It's our criminal justice system, and it's so hurting all Americans at a time that roads and bridges are crumbling in this country where we have, compared to our competitors – disinvested in our infrastructure. The one area, and I've been to foreign countries where they're astonished at this, where we built out infrastructure, put trillions of dollars to build out infrastructure between the time I was in law school, the time I was mayor of my city, we were building a new prison every 10 days. That's where our infrastructure dollars went to. And this is hurting all Americans. And so I don't care about the future. I'm here for a very short period of time. New Jersey's giving me till 2020, till I have to go before them to run for re-election. I want to just be a guy unleashed, trying to do the best I can. And again, we started this conversation talking about race. You know, my mom was so she just so she's such an amazing woman. I wish she was here for to, to, so you could ask her questions. She's more interesting than I am. My dad died six days before I was elected to this job in October of twenty thirteen, and so on the he had day Parkinson's I, disease. He had Parkinson's, yeah. and so on the day I was sworn in in October, I was sworn on the hallowed day of Halloween. 
they took took me, my staff, my everybody but my mom, leading me to go sit down with John Lewis. And she so wanted me to be grounded in the history that brought me mm-hmm. to the Senate because she knew you're the fourth elected African-American to the United States Senate since Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I wish I had a microphone to listen to from the time she left John Lewis where she got the gospel. <laughs> you know, she's now she was a woman loosed and she's just preaching to me as I'm walking like, boy, don't you forget where you came from? The title doesn't make the man. The man's got to make the title. And the 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 beautiful arc, the beautiful history, the way that God conspires sometimes to give you these moments where you are like, holy crap, is that I get to the Senate and as senators do, I write a book. But I have to really fact check my stories because I, I some of the stories of my life and my experiences are so extreme that we already experienced that in my past elections, people just not believing that they were true. So we went back. I mean, I tracked down guys that ran the drug trade in my building. Everybody could to make sure that we were sourcing everything that I said. So I had to find the people that helped my family move in to Harrington Park. And I went after those lawyers. I said, who were these guys that set up these sting operations, who coordinated mm-hmm. all that? Who's the guy that took a punch from my family? And so I found the head of the Fair Housing Council of the 1960s. She was easy to find. Uh, because uh, Miss Lee Porter, because she's still the head of the Fair Housing Council now. She's in her 90s now. Hmm. And she tells me, look for the, here's a lawyer that's alive that was the organizer. I call him up, Arthur Lessman. And this is what he says to me. And this is the power of, that, of, of love and individual actions. And this is what I said to John Lewis yesterday when we were sitting on the steps. I asked the guy, why would you, white guy, starting his career, struggling to make it, put it just put a shingle out as a lawyer, partnered up with another guy, struggling to make it. And he says, Corey, I remember the day I decided to represent black families trying to move into the community. And I'm like, the day? Okay, what was it? December? He goes, no, I remember the day, meaning I remember it was a Monday that I decided. And I'm like, how do you know it was a Monday? And he goes, Corey, because that Sunday, I was sitting in my office, uh, sitting at home on my couch, comfortable, watching some people on a bridge in Alabama, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, get beat down by billy clubs. And it so shook me to my core I knew I couldn't afford to go to Alabama. I knew I couldn't afford uh, to close my offices for one day. But I was going to use what time I had to call uh, organizations in New Jersey and said, who needs a lawyer to help represent black I'm people? I'm sure you s- shared that story with John Lewis, who was uh, almost beaten to death on that. And, and he looked at me and I said, John, I said, that's the, that's the power of you and the other actors on the bridge. They had no clue yeah. that their love in that moment would change the hearts of people in New Jersey who would then go on and change the outcomes for generations yet unborn. That's the power of love. Every individual, every day, I always say the biggest thing you can do in any day is most often going to be a small act of kindness, decency, and love. And it will radiate in ways that you probably will never even know. Somebody will be watching you just pick up a piece of trash and it'll change what they do and another person does. And that's the power of us as Americans. We're here not just because of founding fathers. We're here because, as my father taught me, that conspiracy of love. Ordinary Americans who, despite the politics of the day, found something to do. A dollar in a church collection plate so a kid can go to college. Taking in a boy whose mother was too sick to take care of him. That's what my hope is for this country. That's what's going to help us get through this time. I must say that um, you, you mentioned that I, I, I know this business. I've uh, asked this sort of are you thinking of running question to a lot of people. <laughs> I've never it. heard anyone so artfully navigate around <laughs> it as you just did. <laughs> I, but, I, but I enjoyed it. Thank you, And sir. I've enjoyed this conversation. I, I, Senator I, I, Cory Booker, I, I thank appreciate you. you. I, I know you – please let me just have the moment. Yes. You, you, what you've done for this country is amazing. And uh, you, you've and I, I've read so much about you. You really sacrificed uh, your family and your time and your energy – uh, for America and and the difference you made and again this is things we don't always know the impact we made uh, changed the lives of millions of people not just in our country but in other countries and I just want to thank you well, for, for what I you've done. Well, I very much appreciate that. And as you know, um, those journeys are what make life worth living. You know, so I feel privileged to have had the the, the chance to play some small uh, part. But uh, you will continue to do that. And um, we will watch with interest. And I hope to have more conversations with you. I want to come out to Chicago. I want, I want to speak. We to want it. you. Yeah, I'd love at that. the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Yes. Senator Booker, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit CNN.com slash podcast. 
and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.